0: Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the Sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John,
1: And I'm Andy. And this is the second part of our summary and discussion of the Saga of Horth and the Island Dwellers, the last of the Outlaw Saga subgenre. You
0: yeah, know, In our last episode, we got to know Horth and some of the principal characters a bit, but there hasn't been much island dwelling or outlawry yet. Well,
1: that was last episode. We're going to get a taste of both this time around. Oh, good. That's encouraging. Well, not so much for Horth and his merry band, but that's how the Saga Cookie
0: crumbles this time around, John. Yes, indeed. Uh, now, before we jump ahead to our episode preview, we really need to remind everybody about what happened last time.
1: Oh, do we, though? Do we really?
0: Yeah, it's it's been a while since our first episode on Horth, and I think we could all use a refresher. Are we, uh, are we still doing that silly old-timey newsreel thing?
1: Well, if I have any say in the
0: matter, yes.
1: What about me, though, John? What about me? Don't I have a say in this?
0: Last time on Horv Saga. Our saga began with the unhappy second marriage of Grimkelva Gothi, a powerful man whose notable status and wealth failed to turn the head of his chosen bride, Signy daughter. The two tie the knot, but Signy's already looking for a way to loosen the bonds of matrimony, with the help of her brother Torve, who also disapproves of the match.
1: Thanks to the diplomatic interventions of Signy's foster son, Grimm the Short, Grimkull and Signy managed to keep relations civil long enough to have two children, Horth and his sister Thorbjörg. But Horth is given the old heave-ho at age three and sent to live with Grimm after breaking his mother's necklace. And then Signy dies after giving birth to little Thorbjörg. Thorbjörg becomes Iceland's most well-traveled infant, being passed through several families before also settling
0: at Grimm's farm. Grimkall and his estranged brother-in-law Torvi continue their feud while Horth and Thorbjörg grow up. Horth turns out to be a promising young man, and he eventually sets out to make his way in the world, along with his foster brother Geir, Grimson, and their friend Helge, whose family once cared for Thorbjörg in her postnatal perambulations. Horth and friends end up involved in a daring raid on the
1: grave of the notorious sortie the Viking. Horth nearly meets his maker in the Donnybrook with the undead Viking, and the timely intervention of gear and a high-quality candle allows Horth to
0: banish Soti, but not before Soti curses Horth to a luckless life. Luckless, eh? Well, newly possessed of Soti's arm-ring, sword, and helmet, Horth's feeling like his good fortune's on the rise. But There's a lot more to tell as Horth and company continue the saga of Horth and the Home Dwellers. There. Is that so bad? I'll reserve my commentary for when we're off mic. Oh, you know you love it. Well, I mean, how
1: could I hate it, though?
0: As we said, the first part of the saga was really about establishing the Dramatis Personae. Uh, Most of the big names we discussed last time will continue to be major role players going forward. Horth, Torvi, Thorbjörg, Sigurd, and, of course, the Grims, uh, both the son and foster son of Signy. Uh, They'll all be active participants. Well, one of the Grims won't. He's about to die.
1: But, well, you know, never, never you mind. (laughs) But as, most of them. But as things fall apart, who will emerge as the hero, and who will become the villain?
0: Well, that's actually an interesting question. Right? Uh, this saga seems to be setting Horth up as the hero and Torvi as a sort of villain, and you might expect that dichotomy to continue across the rest of the narrative. But then again, you might find that Horth doesn't quite live up to the heroic persona initially thrust on him in the narrative. Yeah, I mean,
1: it's one of the more interesting aspects of the outlaw saga genre where the lines between what's wrong and what's right and between hero and villain are a bit more blurry than in more traditional narratives.
0: Although that's not always true for outlaw stories. I mean, uh, if we go outside of Iceland, most Robin Hood stories paint a pretty clear line between the outlaw hero and the villainous sheriff. That's true,
1: that's true. And and I'm never confused about where my sympathies are supposed to lie when reading about Harrow the Wake, for example, or... Fitzwarren or William Wallace. I mean, mm-hmm. the only one, as I kind of think of the class that I've taught on outlaws, uh, the only one that really presents any trouble in that regard is
0: Eustace the Monk. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's oh, he's something. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, while all those characters are transgressive in one way or another, they they all break laws or customs as prescribed by those in power, and yet their cause is always just. Yeah, more often than not, they're
1: trying to retake land and titles that have been unjustly seized by corrupt authorities, right? Mm -hmm. That's kind of how the outlaw genre in medieval and early modern literature works. Right, unless you're talking about Icelandic outlaw literature. Yeah, exactly. Every time I teach that outlaw class, the students are always struck by how different these Icelandic stories feel. And I don't know if your students have the same experience, Mm -hmm. but whether we're reading Gisli's saga or Greta's saga, the rules are different and the line between moral and immoral action, it's it's far more blurry. And that's not to say that there is no line. I mean, I think Gisli's pretty clearly set up as an idealized hero in his saga.
0: I think he may represent a more outmoded model of Germanic family loyalty, but the saga definitely holds him up as a more sympathetic character. So why, why did you pause there, John? Well, because while well, I, I ag- generally agree that Gisli is the hero of that text, I think the saga does a great job of leaving it up to the reader to judge the motivations and actions of the characters. Now, remember, uh, we had this episode that we just did, our conversation with Johanna, uh, Catherine Friedrich's daughter, about her book, Valkyrie. And she mentioned that her American students often found Gisli to be a problematic character. And that surprised her. Different readers come to different conclusions. Mm -hmm. But I think that's exactly how the saga author wrote that saga, and that's why it's such a brilliant piece of literature, right? It's so nuanced and you're able to make decisions. Mm-hmm. Well said. And, and honestly, the same could be said of Gretir, right? My, my classes are
1: always divided on Grettir, And while most of them find him unbearable and his actions indefensible, enough of them are drawn in by the effort the author puts into building a complex character that they can actually sympathize and understand the difficult circumstance and the terrible fate that Grettir has to deal with.
0: Yeah, now as much as I love a good medieval outlaw story from anywhere, no one does it quite like the Icelanders. I agree. Now, the
1: question is whether or not Horth's saga holds up and offers that same degree of ambiguity and complexity to make a great work of literature.
0: Well, we're going to spend, what, two more episodes trying to figure this out. Yeah, two counting this one, right? Yes. Well, then we have the judgments, of course. Uh, So I guess it's two more either way you look at it.
1: Well, I'll be curious to hear how people feel about Horth by the end of this episode. Well, by the end of the saga, really. Yeah. And actually, you know, I'm curious to know how everyone feels about him before this episode, too. I mean, did he make a good impression in the first part of the saga? So if you're listening to this and you're near your phone or computer, well, get in touch and share your thoughts on Horth so far. Uh, you can reach us via email at sagathingpodcasts at gmail.com or Facebook, where we're Sagathing Podcast, or even on Twitter at sagathingpod.
0: Or you can tuck a note inside. No, of no, no, a, no, no like, John.
1: No, we're we're no, not at the no, end yet. <laughs> this is just the beginning. And we, we haven't yes, even done the episode preview yet.
0: Uh, right. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, But do share your thoughts on horror or any aspect of the saga as we go through it. Uh, we love hearing from yeah. you guys, especially in real time when we work through these stories. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, now, I might be a
1: little slow in responding sometimes, but that just means I'm hard at work. Is that what we
0: call playing video games? Sometimes, but usually I'm working. Sure. Now, uh, I believe you mentioned an episode preview?
1: I did. In this episode, Horth continues his adventures in Sweden, gaining a wife and furthering his reputation as a man of consequence. But while he and his buddies romp around the Baltic having a grand old time, things are getting more complicated back home in Iceland. When Horth finally returns, he'll discover that his father is dead, his sister Thorbjörg has been married off, and his luck has run out. Later, when Horth finds himself in a bit of trouble with his maternal uncle Torvi, he loses his cool and earns himself a sentence of outlawry. But Horth won't wander off into the wilderness alone. Like the most famous outlaws of European literature, he's got a loyal band of supporters that follow him wherever he goes. After they build a hall with fortifications on an island, the locals struggle to contend with Horth and his men. And as his outlaw exploits get more and more bold, Tensions within his family begin to rise. Can the locals solve the problem of Horth and his bold band of bandits? Who will follow Horth into outlawry and who will fight back? And does Horth have what it takes to establish himself as one of Iceland's greatest outlaw heroes? Find out, as Saga Thing takes on the Saga of Horth and the Island Dwellers, Chapter 16 to 28.
0: It sounds like we've got a lot to cover.
1: You know, I'm seriously bummed that you've put a three-episode cap on our summary and discussion for this one, John.
0: (laughs) No, we can't can't turn every saga into a year-long project. Oh, no? Just
1: give me a chance. I think we... I will not. No, thank you. (laughs) Fine. Well, then we better get started. Horde's got a busy few chapters ahead of him.
0: Part 5. Adventures Abroad.
1: Having vanquished the undead on behalf of the earl's son, Horth starts feeling a little homesick. But when he announces his plans to return to Iceland, the earl and his son Hror ask him to stay a little bit longer.
0: You know, as much as Horth would like to set sail for his homeland, when a wealthy earl asks you to hang around for a bit, it's a good idea to
1: consider it. Well, that's right, and, and Horth's no dummy. Sensing an opportunity, he says that he'll stay a little while longer in Sweden, but only if he can
0: have the hand of Helga the Earl's daughter, in marriage. That's a clever boy. He is. Now, after the Earl consults with both Helga and Hror, the match is quickly arranged. Yeah, I like that Helga was at least consulted on this one. Yeah, it's important to have that moment uh, after what happened with uh, Horth's parents. Yes, definitely. Uh, That that marriage got off to a rocky start, (laughs) partially because the bride-to-be was not consulted. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's interesting to note that Hrór, the brother of the bride, is also asked to approve the match.
1: Yeah, and I I think that's really interesting, too. And it's in keeping with the late medieval models of betrothal in Iceland, where kind of everyone of importance in the family seems to have a say, Uh, Mm -hmm.
0: but at least the woman is asked. That's a nice development, I think. And fortunately, in this case, everyone agrees. Uh, I think it's worth noting, because the saga notes it, that Horth loved his wife very much. Uh, I mean, he probably also loved the wealth and reputation that come with her. Definitely. You know, Uh, little Horth Grimkleson is just married into a high-status family of a fictional Earl. So, congrats to Horth. Yeah. He's moving on up to the sweet side. To the deluxe meat hall. In the sky? Oh, know. wow. Yeah, that's what's happening. He's moving uh, on up! F- this is happening, too. Come on, John. That uh. was good. And uh, while we don't really get to know Helga much yet, she's uh, she's an impressive lady. Is she? Uh, I think listeners are going to like her when she finally gets her moment to shine. But that's not for a while. Quite a long while,
1: actually. So for now, Horde settles into life with Helga and her family in Sweden. And soon he sets sail with his new brother-in-law, Hror, and his foster brothers, Ger, and his Well,
0: Helgi, (laughs) for some supreme Viking raiding adventures. He does, but we don't actually get to see most of those adventures because the story now shifts to follow Sigurd, Torvi's foster brother. Now, who is Sigurd again? He's Torvi's foster brother. Nice. Really nice, John. Really helpful. Thank you. I'll be here all week. Thank you. Tip your waitress.
1: Uh huh. No, really. As my students say, there are a lot of names to keep track of here. Remind me specifically
0: who is Sigurd, Torvi's foster brother. Uh, he's the guy who Torvi once ordered to kill baby Thorbjorg. Oh yes, um, and baby Thorbjorg, you'll remember, is Hore, the sister. Mm-hmm. Torvi is their maternal uncle, uh, and Sigurd was Torvi's foster brother. Does that help? That's right. Very, very thorough. Thank you. And then,
1: uh, if I remember, he got sent off to foreign lands to protect him from Torvi's wrath. Right? Yeah, exactly.
0: And and that's where the narrative is going to pick up at the start of chapter seventeen.
1: Ah, uh-huh. so we're back in our time traveling Dnora, Ian. Denorian. <laughs> wow,
0: way to, way to deliver that word. Uh, but we'll have to hit 88 knots per hour to achieve the boost we need to get back to Sigurd's flight from Iceland. Gotta go
1: back in time.
0: Oh, wow. Uh, this now, like so many Icelanders <laughs> who flee Iceland, Sigurd finds himself back in Norway. As one does, yes. Yeah, but he doesn't stay for long. The following summer, he booked a ship to Denmark where King Harald Gormson was in power. Uh, Harald Gormson otherwise known as Harold Bluetooth Gormson. That's the one. But that puts us somewhere <laughs> in the mid to late 10th century, right? That's That seems right. Okay. Uh, now, remember, Harold Greycloak is king of Norway at this point. So, yeah, we're in the, what, 960s. Right. Well, if I were Harold Greycloak, I'd watch out for that Saltio
1: Bluetooth down in Denmark because something tells me he could be trouble. You think? I do. But anyway, you were saying about Bluetooth.
0: Yes, uh Sigurd quickly befriends Harold Bluetooth, and soon he's got wealth, reputation. Every Icelander's dream when they travel abroad. Even today, is that true? I I don't know if that's the immediate goal of Icelanders who board an airplane at Reykjavik. I don't think they'd mind if it happened. Uh, fair fair enough. Uh, well, and things work out exceptionally well for Sigurd Torvi's foster brother. Before you know it, he's commanding five Viking ships. Good for him. I
1: mean, that's a bit of good karma for him saving little Thorbjork. I like that.
0: Well, he's a lucky boy at first. Until...
1: Oh, no. The good karma train is about to derail, isn't it? Someone's about to get cut in half, right? (laughs)
0: Let's see. Uh, So one morning, when Sigurd and his men awaken from a good night's rest, they see seven Viking ships rowing toward them. That's seven against Sigurth's five. Not ideal, but maybe not hopeless either. Now, when, when Sigurd asks who's in command of the ships, a large, and as the saga says, Svartormann, steps forward, introduces himself. He is Björn Blasida, the son of Ulfheden, the son of Ulfham, the son of Ulf, the son of Ulfham the shapeshifter.
1: Yes, yes. I was looking forward to talking about this guy. <laughs> He, he's not going to be a major player in the story, but there's a lot packed into his name and his genealogy that we should maybe unpack here,
0: if that's okay. I mean, he thought it was important enough to shout the entire five-generation <laughs> genealogy off of his ship yes. at another ship, so that seems significant. Go for
1: it. Great. So, now I know the Fornrit edition of Harder Saga ok has a, a note on Bjorn Blaustad, uh, and mainly I know that because I asked you to look it up and, and send me a picture. <laughs> Uh, but that one's mainly focused on another appearance of Bjorn Blausida in Haukstauter Haubrókar, mm-hmm. And and the appearance of Ulf-related names and other sources
0: also pop in there. Um, so it's not sure. terribly important. but Yeah. Well, it's, but it is important to note that Bjorn Blausida's character is consistent here with his depiction in Haukstauter, uh, which the note mentions. In that story, he's one of King Erik of Sweden's favorite warriors, mm-hmm. and he's... Not a nice guy. No. Uh, I believe the tale describes him as an Olyavnath mother. A, an unfair or unjust man. Yeah, it does. But there's the
1: small problem of that version of Bjorn Blausida kind of dying in battle with Hauk in that story.
0: Well, true, but I mean he wouldn't be our first character to experience multiple deaths. I remember Soti from last time. Yeah. He's also, I should say, consistently Swedish and troublesome in both texts. So that counts for something.
1: Fair enough. And geographically speaking, it fits his sudden appearance here because Sigurd has sailed east into the Baltic, somewhere along the southern coast of Finland. So... In that small, small world, it makes sense that he might run into one of King Eric's men,
0: or you know that the author would dip in into the bag of stock bad guys who roam those waters in other stories.
1: Sure, and and I think it's probably the best way to think of Bjorn here. Actually, he's a stock figure introduced as an obstacle or a danger to the protagonist of the episode. In this case, Sigurd
0: Torfey's foster brother. Right, and and if his large, imposing figure isn't enough to indicate that he's trouble. His footlong ancestry full of Ulf names helps to underscore his status as a brute who gets what he wants. Yes, and Ulf means
1: wolf as in
0: Kveldulf or evening wolf. Right, and Björn, whose name means bear, comes from a line of men with the Ulf uh, element in their name. Mm-hmm. So starting with Ulfhaven, a stock berserker name, right? It's for a warrior who takes on the attributes of a wolf in battle. Yeah, and then there's
1: Ulfham which is basically wolf skin or wolf shape, again, suggesting a similar ability
0: to transform into a wolf or to adopt its attributes. Right. And in case the genealogy were too subtle at this point, we also just get a guy named Ulf, the yes. wolf. And then the great Ulfham, the shapeshifter. Uh, so in other words, this family has a lengthy and not terribly subtle animalistic berserker pedigree. Absolutely. and And then, of course, there's the
1: color terminology that's really interesting. Björn, the hulking bear of a man with a shapeshifter pedigree, is initially described as a huge and svarter man. Svarter is a word commonly used in nicknames and descriptors of characters who either have dark hair or a dark complexion.
0: Yeah, the term... Pops up in a lot of nicknames, like Ilugi the Black from Egil Saga or Bard the Black from Njal Saga. Yeah, it does,
1: uh, but it's also a common descriptor, like I said, especially as a signal to the reader that the character is either of a lower status, like a Gaelic slave, or or maybe even a troublesome type.
0: It's also it's also a good indicator that the character is foreign or different or even just other. Right. So, right. for example, Thoral the Hunter from Erik the Red Saga is described as Svartur. Uh, but he's neither particularly troublesome nor of lower status. I mean, he's not particularly
1: troublesome, but he does poison everybody with his pagan whale meat.
0: That's true. He, he does do that, yes. So
1: he's just a little bit problematic.
0: I mean, it's a small mistake, Andy. Can't, we can't blame Thorhall for a bit of poisonous whale meat. How was he to know? Fair enough. So maybe he wasn't so
1: troublesome. But the term Svarter <laughs> is also used to describe giants and trolls, Draugr devils and other menacing Mm -hmm. figures throughout saga literature. So I think it's fair to say that in general, the Icelanders who wrote the sagas considered darker hair or darker complexions as less desirable or at least a marker of otherness.
0: I think that's one possibility, Mm -hmm. right? There are just people who are of dark complexion, of svart complexion. Uh, It's also worth noting that Icelanders who wrote these stories tended to place a great deal of emphasis on the symbolic potential of color. Right. Right. Uh, we said back when we covered Hromkill's saga that it's worth paying attention when an author mentions, say, the color of somebody's cloak or clothes. Right? Darker colors often an indicator of darker intentions. Right.
1: And so while I think it's tempting and quite possibly correct to read a particular bias for lighter hair and complexions into the sagas, it's, it's also important to remember that the authors are working with established literary and cultural conventions where darkness can be shorthand for uncertainty and fear and evil. So I think it's that's actually the best way to read Bjorn Blausida here. Oh, and uh, what are, speaking of Blausida, what about that nickname? It's a nickname, John. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about that?
0: I, I I do, but I'm going to save it for the nickname section of the judgments. Okay. Uh, Bjorn is is barely a minor character in this saga. We've already spent a ba- fair amount of time on him here. You
1: know, I have I have a theory on Bjorn Blausida's name, so I hope you'll ask me when we get there.
0: I'll try to remember that.
1: All right. Well, if people had any idea though. How long of a pause a moment like this, a name like Blausida or, or the word Svarter mm. would cause uh, while we you know, prep these things? I think they'd be shocked. Um, I mean, I spent way, way <laughs> too much time researching Viking terms for color and exploring the possibilities
0: that Bjorn might maybe not have been white. No, it's, it, this is fascinating stuff. I don't want to encourage you particularly, but I think we could probably turn some of that effort into a saga brief on the subject of color and ethnicity in the sagas. Well, one can dream, John.
1: I, I, I mean, I like the idea, but it's it's a pleasant dream at the moment. But, uh, okay, let's, uh, let's get back to the story. So this guy, who calls himself Bjorn Blacksides, rolls up with seven Viking ships and asks to speak to the commander of five Viking ships that he's interested in plundering. What happens next?
0: Okay, well, first of all, I'm going to ignore the fact that you just spoiled the nickname uh, and just say that, to make a long story short, (laughs) they end up killing everybody except for Sigurd, Torfi's foster brother. Yes, Sigurd did put up a good fight, but in the end,
1: he was surrounded by Bjorn's men and beaten down with shields. And uh, it's kind of an interesting story. But for some reason, they decide to tie him up for the night so that they can execute him in the morning. So they bind his hands and feet, and then assign
0: six guards to watch him. I mean, well, first of all, Andy, this is something we've seen before, right? In Ael Saga, we saw this as well—that it's considered both kind of illegal and bad form to kill
1: somebody at night. Wow! So they just—he just have to survive until the uh, the sun goes down.
0: Right, right. If you can fight for that long, right, you have until morning. But of course, the fact that he does have until morning makes this a classic opening for a daring escape as well. I mean, this is
1: a yawning portal for Sigurd. They've already killed all of his men. I say finish the
0: job right there. I'm still frustrated by that rule. Well, it's ridiculous. Right. I mean, it's also possible their arms are tired after all that fighting. <laughs> uh, it's, it's hard to poke a guy in the chest with a sword or lop off one more head after a fight like mm-hmm. that. Maybe they just need a good night's rest to limber up the arms.
1: Yes. Yeah, so well, that's probably where the rule comes from. <laughs> there you go. And if you are <laughs> going to capture a guy like this, you could at least try to ransom him for some extra cash, you know? Haven't these guys read books? Or maybe watch the James Bond movie. They're just asking for trouble. James
0: Bond? I I guess they, they do pull the, uh, we can call it the old dread pirate robber. Exactly. Routine the Sigurd, right? Good night, Sigurd. Sleep well. We'll most likely kill you in the morning.
1: <laughs> yes, but it gets worse. Sigurd says that he's not afraid of death.
0: That's what they all say under these circumstances. Yes, well, then he well, offers well, to recite of them a poem.
1: Oh, Of course he does. Now, I don't know if he uses some sort of magic chanting or whether he just has a very dull, monotone voice, but he (laughs) recites the poem in such a way that all six guards fall asleep. Yeah,
0: I've I've been through a few lectures like
1: that. (laughs) Hell, I've I've delivered a few lectures like that. I'm sure you have. (laughs) Now, as the guards are sound asleep, Sigurd rolls himself to a nearby axe and cuts the ropes binding his hands. I'm sorry, you said a, a nearby axe. Yes, a nearby axe. That's very convenient. I mean, if you're going to tie a prisoner up with rope and then let him tell you a bedtime story, the least you can do is leave a sharp axe nearby.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a kind gesture, I suppose. The thousand and one Arabian nights, but only one night and with an axe the guy can use to escape. I mean, it's probably not more <laughs> than 15 minutes.
1: <laughs> and th- th- get this. This is the part that I love the most. Sigurd has to deal with these iron fetters that are actually around his ankles, and they're a bit tight, but he manages to wriggle out of them. But in the process he shaves off the skin and a bit of the heel bone from both his feet.
0: Ooh, yeah, I don't like that. Uh, as a guy who recently had a simple procedure done on my foot, I cannot imagine the kind of pain that would cause. How the heck is he supposed to walk away from that? Well, conveniently, it's
1: never really mentioned again. I, so I'm guessing it wasn't all that bad. <laughs> or maybe you're just a big baby, John. I don't know. That's also possible. Anyway, Sigurd stands up on his bloody heels and uses the axe to kill the
0: sleeping guards. That's... I call that ingratitude. They left him that nice axe to escape with. Yes,
1: yes. But at least he's free now. So Mm Sigurd hobbles over to the side of the ship, leaps into the water, and swims ashore before anyone seems to notice that he's gone.
0: Salt water in those wounds. (laughs) Yes.
1: And then once on the beach, he walks as fast as his sliced feet can carry him across the headland until he sees four ships and a bunch of
0: tents on the shore. Great. Now, by this time, it's nearly morning. Uh, Sigurd's getting desperate. He's injured, his crew's been killed, his boats have been seized or sunk. And Bjorn Blausi, the ships, really aren't that far
1: away. All they have to do is right. follow those bloody footprints along the beach, and they're going to find him pretty quick.
0: <laughs> I'm sorry, I think you were saying that uh, it was a big baby thing to complain about your feet. I, uh, there's no complaints. There's still the blood right. spore. Right, and so in desperation, Sigurth calls out to the men in the tents, asking who might be in charge there. And in what we have to say is probably the biggest coincidence we've encountered in a very long time. Sigurd learns at this point that the boats belong to none other than Horth, his brother-in-law, Hror, and his companions, Garen Helgi. Now, of all the tents on all the beaches in all of northern Europe,
1: Sigurd just happens to walk into Horth's. Yep. What are the chances of that? I mean,
0: astronomically slim? I mean... But that doesn't matter. Horth immediately recognizes Sigurd and promises to set things right with the Vikings. And by set things right, he's not talking about
1: negotiating an equitable se- settlement.
0: No, he's, he's more inclined toward the
1: hacky-slashy kind of setting things, right? Yes. And as Bjorn Blausida's crew is awakening the next morning, they're rather surprised to see Horth's four ships sailing toward them around
0: the headland. Right. Now, despite having fewer ships and presumably fewer men, Hord and his foster brothers dominate Bjorn's forces. Before you know it, Hord and Gear have boarded Bjorn's own ship. They cut down every man they see. Uh, now, Bjorn spots Horth and swings a heavy blow in his direction, but Horth leaps out of the way, and Bjorn's sword gets caught in the crossbeam of the sail. And that is not good for Bjorn. No, it's not. Uh, As soon as Horth sees Bjorn exposed like this, he strikes hard and swiftly, cutting Bjorn in two right below the ribcage with his sword, Sotanov. Mm. And how does Bjorn feel about this? I I mean, I I imagine he doesn't feel much at all below the sternum. (laughs) The but the saga doesn't say.
1: Well, it doesn't matter because Geir, Helgi, and Hrór have successfully cleared all the ships by this point, and the beaches must be stained red with their blood. This is a massacre.
0: Yeah, and don't forget Sigurth. Uh, he helped clear a whole ship by himself with his heel bone shaved off. He got right in there, huh? Yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, he doesn't seem that bothered by the injury. It's it's almost as if. It never happened. It's almost (laughs) as if. But
1: at this point, the saga does mention that he took some time off to heal after this adventure, Mm -hmm. even though it didn't hinder him at any point.
0: Yeah, no fair. Uh, And while this little short episode about Sigurd's encounter with Bjorn Blasiv might feel a little extraneous to the narrative, let me assure you, it's somewhat important (laughs) in that it, it establishes the bond that develops between Sigurd and Horth going forward. Right. And as the saga says,
1: Sigurd accompanied Horth all his life afterwards, as long as he lived, Mm -hmm. and he was considered the most valiant man.
0: Right, and we'll see plenty of evidence of this bond and the bravery of both Sigurd and Horth as the saga progresses. Speaking of progressing... Part 6, Shifting Grounds. Now,
1: while Horth seems to have grown quite comfortable in his new life as the son-in-law of a fictional Swedish earl... His foster brother Ger, decides that it's time to head back to Iceland. And after asking for permission to break from the group, he makes his way homeward.
0: Right, and this trip isn't altogether
1: uneventful. That was a very
0: sagalý
1: way to put that. Sagalý? Yeah, it's a it's a new adverb I'm trying out, John. It it means like or having the qualities of a saga.
0: Yeah, got it. <laughs> Uh, well, as soon as Geir reaches Norway, his party is ambushed by men on behalf of Queen Gunild, the mother of kings. Oh, her again? Yeah. She, you
1: know, she really needs her own villainous background music for when her name comes up.
0: Have we not established that? Can you find something? Yeah, well, no,
1: no, hold on. Okay. Go, go ahead and set that up again. We'll see. Who, who arranged the attack on Geir?
0: Why, it was Gunild, the mother of kings. How was that? I assume that works.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: Great. Well, anyway, I'm sure that our faithful listeners remember that Geir had previously killed Arnthor, Gunild's favorite treasurer. Mm-hmm. And that's what cut Horde's visit to Norway so short and sent him on his way to Sweden. Right. Now, I bet people thought that
0: was uh, that was an extraneous piece of information last time. No, no. Oh, <laughs> this is all too, comes back. This is too canny an author to leave something like that <laughs> laying around. That's right. Uh, now, Gear escapes with his life, barely, but he does manage to get out with his weapons and relatively unscathed. Then he flees as fast as legs can carry him to the home of Brynjolf, son of Thorbjörn, who we met in our previous episode. Yes, and there's a theory
1: circulating amongst those who learn about this attack that Gunnild must have lured Gere back to the shores of Norway using <laughs> her magic. Uh, our author has been reading Eil's saga, it sounds like. Yeah, I think so. And there's really not that much more to say about Gear after this. Brunjolf sets him up with a safe passage back to Iceland. When he gets home, he learns that his father, Grim the Short, has recently passed away. His mother, Gudrid, and Thorbjörg, his foster sister, were taking care of the farm.
0: Right. That's uh, Thorbjörg, who's Horth's sister.
1: That's right. And remember that Grim the Short took her in and raised her after she got passed around like a hot potato.
0: Yeah, I remember. Uh, now, that settles things for Gear, at least for the time being. But life is about to get somewhat more complicated for Thorbjörg. Uh, A man called Indridi, uh, the son of Thordrum, a smithwoman, decides that Thorbjörg would make an ideal wife. So, as any good Icelandic lad of his age might do, he rides over to her father's farm to make the proposal. To her father's farm? Yes, he rides to Grimkell's farm. I mean, she doesn't
1: live there, but it's nice to see that Grimkels getting involved.
0: Right, and, well, I mean... He's involved, but he's not overly eager to accept the proposal. He doesn't (laughs) even let Ingrid and his companions come into the house. He just kind of blocks the doorway and says, we cannot do something like that on the spur of the moment.
1: Same old grumpy Grimkow. I know. But maybe, here's a positive, maybe he learned something from his hasty marriage to Signy. I mean, that didn't exactly go well Mm -hmm. when her brother Torvi wasn't consulted, right? And now Horth is overseas. So I'd like to think that maybe Grimkel is being respectful of Horth here and his role in
0: the patrol process. I mean, it'd be great if he were respectful of his daughter's role in the patrol process, but sure, we'll we'll settle for what we can get. Well, he said <laughs> we can't rush right, this, right. so maybe he's thinking about that there too. There you go. Uh, but Grimkill's new wife, Sigrid, remember we said last time that Grimkell does have a third marriage to a woman named Sigrid. Uh, Sigrid thinks he's being ridiculous, uh, and eventually... Grimkell relents and sends men to fetch Indridi back to the house. They, they, Now, they sit down and make the arrangements, and they agree that Indridi himself would have to be responsible for how anyone who wasn't present when the betrothal was set might feel.
1: Again, there's a strong emphasis on consent there. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again that consent stuff, that was a major cultural issue in Iceland throughout the whole period of saga writing. Mm-hmm. So the emphasis on the brother's role here is new, however, and quite interesting. Mm. And that's really a marker of this being a later saga when that that actual component was starting to be an expectation.
0: I mean if there's a if there's an expectation at this point that the father, brother, or even the woman herself should be consulted, then Grimkill and Inj are doing this all wrong. <laughs> Oh, they sure are. And Indridi moves fast. As soon as he has approval from Grimkel, he gets on his horse and rides over to Gear's new farm to fetch Thorbjörg. We're told that Gear wasn't home at the time, which is probably a good thing for Indridi, mm-hmm. because rumor had circulated that Gear and Thorbjörg had a thing for one another. But that doesn't matter now. Indridi informs Thorbjörg that she's going to be his wife and that she is to ride with him to Ulfusvatn for the ceremony.
1: See, that's a hell of a day for Thorbjorg, right? I mean, can you imagine how that would feel? Indridi is a stranger to her completely, and suddenly he shows up at the doorstep and says, "Come with me. You're my new wife. It's all been arranged. Is that,
0: Hop on is the that, horse." Is that the is that Indridi's voice? I, in this case, yes. I mean, but this is you know the truth is this is a terrible reality that many women throughout history have no doubt had to face. That's true, and the saga handles it pretty casually. Uh, saying
1: that, you know, she didn't say anything in opposition mm-hmm. to the arrangement or fuss about riding away with injury. But there's a distinct feeling of sadness underlying the whole scene for yeah,
0: me. Yeah. Uh, and meanwhile, Grimkill rides out to pray for a happy marriage at the temple of Thorgird Horgebrud, uh, as a local deity or possibly a guardian goddess for Grimkill's family. And then things get weird. Yes. Yes, they do. Uh, as Grimkill enters the temple he finds all the gods in a great commotion, uh, and several of them are about to step down from their pedestals as if they're leaving the temple altogether. When Grimkil asks what exactly they're doing and why they're preparing to leave, the statue of Thorgard responds, We shall not direct good fortune to Horth, since he has so recently plundered the mound of my brother Sorti, taken the fine gold ring of his, and disgraced him horribly.
1: Well, it looks like the salty expedition is coming back to haunt
0: Horth. Quiet you, I'm prophesying. Now, (laughs) as I was saying, I will direct good fortune toward Thorbjörg, but you, Grimpel, only have a short time to live.
1: Hmm. See, and that's why I think that Thorgerd Holgabruth is Grimkel's family Dees, a spirit that watches over the family. We talked about those with, um, I don't know, one of the Thouter that we we read recently. (laughs) I can't remember them now. Um, But in this case, she's also a goddess. Um, But either way, she's she's clearly in charge of the family's good fortunes. And because of his actions Mm -hmm. against Solti, any luck that Horth has enjoyed up to now is at its end. It's also a good
0: transition point for the saga. Indeed it is. Oh, um, and Grimkell dies later that night. We should mention that. Oh, yes, yes. He drops dead at dinner that night. Yeah, and all his property uh, falls into the hands of Indridi and Ilugi because Horde
1: was still abroad. Oh, right. Now, Indridi is only interested in taking on the property associated with Thorbjörg's dowry, which is nice. Um, so it's not going to be those kind of disputes there. And the rest of the property oh. is transferred to Ilugi. And if you're sitting there wondering who the heck Ilugi is, well... He's the guy who married Thurid, Grimkil's daughter, with his first wife that we talked about before. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I can't recall if we mentioned them in the first episode, did we?
0: Oh, no, of course we did. That's It's Ilugi the Red. Oh, um, yeah. There was a whole big deal over Ilugi marrying Thurid and Horth getting all huffy about it. That's right, yes. And then he rejected the first gift
1: and offered a few prophecies about their relationship. How could I forget? Right, yes. right. Um, I was whining about that. <laughs> so he's in charge of Grimkill's <laughs> property now and Horth's portion of the inheritance.
0: Right. And when Horth does come home a few years later, he receives a fine welcome from everyone. Really? And there's no problem with Ilugi? None at all. Uh, Ilugi rides to the shore and invites Horth and all his men to stay with him for the winter. And they're all treated extremely well.
1: That's amazing. And and what about the property? No problem with that? No transfer problems?
0: Ah, uh, well... Not exactly. Uh, Ilugi does offer to arrange everything, but... Horth insists on claiming the property from his uncle Torvi. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, and the problem is that Torvi isn't convinced that he should turn over his property to a man who, as he says, might turn out worse than his father. So Horth goes home empty-handed. Well, he does. Uh, Now, Ilugi advises Horth to let things be, mainly because... Torvi's known to be a pretty terrible guy who resorts to underhanded methods when pushed.
1: Yeah, but Horth isn't going to just lie down and let Torvi walk all over him.
0: No, of course not. Uh, not. He rides around, gathers a large band of supporters, and returns to Torvi's property with a small army behind him. And suddenly Torvi is more inclined to negotiate. what a surprise. They found a soft spot. There you go. Uh, It's uh, it's all the spots you can stick a sword in. (laughs) That's right. Uh... So Torvi agrees to hand over the land and property that's owed to Horth, but he reminds everyone that Horth's true character is still unknown. Which is why he's reluctant to turn things over, actually. That's what he says.
1: Well, it's it's not just this grudge that he holds against Grimkel and his offspring, is it? Oh, that's definitely part Mm -hmm. of it. Well, at least this minor dispute ends happily. Horth takes over his father's land and lives there happily for two years with no trouble.
0: Two years with no trouble, huh? Yeah. What happened in the third year? Well... Part 7. Boom! Goes the dynamite. And yeah, the third year is kind of rough for Horth.
1: That's not surprising. I mean, we've been getting a lot of signals throughout this saga that things might fall apart for our hapless hero.
0: Well, I mean, once the household gods turned their backs on him, it was only a matter of time. Indeed. So, yeah, there's there's this man called
1: Alth, and he's an odd man and somewhat quarrelsome. And he's wealthy, but he's also from an insignificant family. Oh, he sounds like a promising fellow. And he's got a son called Sigurd, and two piebald mares that he, he loves a great
0: deal, John. How does he feel about his son?
1: Yeah, it doesn't say at all. <laughs>
0: yeah, well. <laughs> well, he's not the only one with nice horses, you know. Horth has five black stallions. Stallions, you say? Yep. And didn't you say that Al has two mares that he loves? I did, yes. So, five stud horses and two mares. Mm-hmm. Uh, this sounds like a recipe for disaster. It is, yes. It's a powder keg, one might say. Something like more like a horse singles bar, but
1: uh, <laughs> that's fine. Carry on. Uh, before long, Owl's mares
0: are wandering away from their pasture to get closer to Horth's studs. Yeah, now... It's important to note here that the saga interrupts the story to say that Horth is a well-respected member of the community and on good terms with people. Except for Torvi.
1: That seed of kinship never really blossoms for them, does it? No, uh, but
0: as this saga also says, Torvi was thought difficult and hard to deal with. Oh, and, and also he's a gothi now. Oh, when did that happen? Yeah, it's not clear, but it's a good development for maybe. him and nobody else. Yeah, well, maybe it was Grimkill's, because Grimkill
1: had a go north, right? So maybe it's that one, I guess. Anyway. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. That's what's going on here. Yeah, so so we have Owl's mares running off with stud horses, and Torvi's now a Gothi who's hard to deal with. And this all sounds like a setup for us.
0: Well, fate works in mysterious
1: ways, Andy. Does it? I mean, because this all seems very straightforward to me. I mean, it does, doesn't it? Yeah. So anyway, Horth tries to resolve the problem with the horses by leading his studs
0: over the mountain to hide them from Alth's mares. It's a good gesture. Unfortunately, it doesn't work. The, mm. the mares sniff out the studs and find them on the other side of the mountain, far from Alth's property. Now Sigurd, the son of Alth, locates the mares who have located the studs, but he can't catch them. And when Horth finds
1: out about this, he sends his companion Helgi to help Sigurd round up the mares. Right. So Helgi finds Sigurd, who's found the mares, who's found the horses. That's, oh, is this turned into a children's book? <laughs> <laughs> but when Helgi arrives on the scene, he
0: discovers that Sigurth has injured one of the stallions. Oh, boy. Uh, now, Helgi's already in a bad mood from being sent out on this wild horse chase. And now he's angry. Uh, he turns to Sigurd and says, You are the makings of a wicked man, and you're not going to spoil any good animals after this. Oh, no. Yeah, then he kills Sigurd. Stupid Helgi. Come on. It's a bit rash, I admit.
1: And when Horth finds out about this, well, he's understandably rather furious. Uh He considers killing Helgi right then and there, but he controls his temper. Still, he complains, It has now come about what I had a feeling would happen. And it is very likely that it will all somehow turn out to be the cause of death for both of us and many others, along with other things that will happen and that must be foreordained.
0: Well, that was awkwardly put.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, something tells me those weren't Horth's exact words. The saga <laughs> author really made a mishmash of Horth's whole speech. It's some of the worst writing that I've seen in sagas.
0: It's not great, Uh, but what he's saying is at least consistent with what we first learned of both Helgi and Horth. Mm -hmm. Remember in our first episode, when Helgi asked if he could travel with Horth and Gear, both Horth and his sister Thorbjörg were against the idea, because uh, now Thorbjörg said, Helgi's family seemed prone to disaster. Uh, And Horth felt like Helgi's father, Sigmund, the beggar who had fostered Thorbjörg, brought great disgrace on their family. Yeah, in other words, any
1: relationship with Helgi was doomed from the start.
0: Yeah, no, and if, if you're the kind of person who believes
1: in doom and luck, yeah. Well, these characters seem to put a lot of stock in it, so. Mm-hmm. Sadly, there's little that Horth can do about the situation,
0: though. I mean, he could kill Helgi, He um, should kill which would Helgi. at least resolve the legal issue of Sigrid's death. Yeah, but Helgi has always been a loyal
1: companion to Horth, and I, I mm-hmm. just don't think he has the heart to do it. And so he just covers the body and rides home to consider his options. And eventually he decides that he's going to ride out to Aoth's property. So he finds him and decides to approach him and offer him immediate self-judgment as a sign of his deep regret for what happened to his son Yeah,
0: Now, it's a generous move on Horth's part, but unfortunately, Mm -hmm. Aoth has other plans. He says, I have just been to see my friend Torvi and delegated the case to him. And he's promised to, to pursue it to the fullest extent of the law.
1: Now Horth is flummoxed by this. He he simply can't believe what he's just heard. I mean involving Torvi is a bold and aggressive move. And it's it's actually more than Horth can handle. He says, You've done a terrible thing stirring trouble between me and Torvi. And now you'll pay for it. Mm. And then he draws his sword Sultanat, and he cuts Out in two. And then he also kills the workman that was nearby.
0: See, that's, that's a very harsh response.
1: It is, but he's not done. Horth is so angry that he burns all of the farm buildings, and then two women who refused to come outside died in those fires. See, Horth, what are you doing? I, I
0: believe he's running amok. It's, it's a remarkably sharp turn in his character.
1: I know. I mean, the whole thing feels so off to me because I feel like the saga's put a lot of effort into trying to get us to like him, or at least feel positively about him. I mean, right, he's we've a POV been, character. Right? Yeah, right. So, I mean, we've been warned that things would turn sour for Horth eventually, so that's not surprising, but that was all a matter of Horth's fate and his bad luck. This headlong dive into bloodlust, to me, makes absolutely no sense.
0: Right, and I think we're supposed to understand that Horth sees no way out at this point. Right. Uh, he knows Torvi is going to seek full outlawry here. Look, yes,
1: I understand that Horth and Torvi have problems, but... Horth could at least have attempted to build a case to defend himself against the outlawry that Torvi surely would have sought. But there's been nothing in the text so far to indicate that Horth would fly off the handle like this. Plus, Horth has done very well for himself overseas. If he actually got sentenced to outlawry, well, he could just easily sail off to his father-in-law's hall in Sweden. I mean, the whole episode is just ridiculous to
0: me. What do you make of it? I mean, it seems to me that, first of all, we're dealing with a story that... We've seen in many respects, this saga is very interested in the power of uh, prophecy, the power of supernatural events and beings. Uh, And this, the curse of Soti, I think, is probably what we're meant to understand is to blame here. Mm. That Horth is now behaving in ways that are detrimental to himself, and he's being led into those decisions by sort of the bad actions of his friends. Uh, But Soti is Soti's curse kind of hangs over uh, Horth from the moment of the tomb raid at the end of our last episode mm. through this entire section. Almost uh, as if it's a nod towards
1: Glamr's curse of of Gretcher. Exactly, there's an awareness. Right. I think we're looking
0: yeah. at uh, a story that is very self consciously imitating sort of the standard the standard tropes of the outlaw narrative. Yeah. Uh, but having said that, it narratively. It's deeply unsatisfying because Horde doesn't, there isn't anything in his character or his background to lead us to believe that he'd react this way to, I mean, yes, involving Torvi is harsh, but we have to say all of this certainly within his rights to go to his gothi and ask for help dealing with the death of his son. And we've seen saga characters get out of worse scrapes legally, right, and
1: and by other means. So yeah, right. But it's interesting. I think that that idea of 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 Sol-Ti's, the curse of Solti being on him is is a big a big part of that. I, I was so frustrated with this. I started looking into it a little bit, and I, I discovered yeah. that there's also a small problem that uh, of all the events in this saga, the slaying of Out is the only one that's mentioned in another source.
0: Right, right. This is sort of one of our anchors.
1: Yes, exactly. It's, it's it's mentioned specifically in the Sturlabók, book, the, the earliest surviving copy of Nama book, uh, under an entry for a man called Rauðr, as a matter of fact, and it mm-hmm. says that he had two sons, Ulf and Aðr, and it also notes that Aðr was killed by Hörðr, which gave rise to, as it says, the saga of Horth Grimkelsen and
0: Geir. So it's very interesting because Horths saga is traditionally thought of as a later quote-unquote post-classical saga, mm-hmm. Right. Uh, written in the what second half of the 14th century, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And and it's probably correct for this version of the saga,
1: but clearly an earlier version existed, and that's what they're referring to in like mm-hmm. the 12, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, whenever the the, the Sturla book was written. Um, and and some some scholars think that Sturla Thorsteinsson himself may have written that that earlier version. Just because it gets mentioned in the Nama book, I I guess so. It, you know, it's kind of flimsy evidence, really. But mm-hmm. but who doesn't love to speculate, John?
0: I mean, it's interesting, and it at least establishes that Horth is known in 13th century Iceland as a killer and an outlaw. Right. And and speaking of which, uh, how does he get outlawed? Well, in the usual way. Uh, Torvi is shocked when he learns about Horth's behavior and the killings. And, uh, of course, we probably suspect that he threw a few I-told-you-sos around yes, while he definitely. prepared his case against Horth. And, you know, if the concern was that Torvi was going to seek outlawry, He's got a hell of a case for full outlawry now. He sure does, yeah.
1: Now, Helgi, ever the loyal companion and also somewhat responsible, um, he at <laughs> least tries to get help for Horth when Horth says, ride over to Thorbjörg's property and ask Indride, her husband, to handle Horth's case at the All Thing and maybe offer terms for settlement. But Indridi listens and then refuses, saying that he's already booked for an appearance at the Kjallernes assembly. And so he simply doesn't have enough time, but... He does at least offer to shelter Horth at his house, which is something, and there's at least a kind gesture
0: there, but not what they Yeah, at. yeah. It's it's something, but it's not much. Uh, Helgi is understandably frustrated with this answer. He was hoping to gain a strong ally for Horth by convincing Indridi to step in, but there's little he can do about it. As, as Thorbjörg says, uh, it would have been some help if a reliable man had come with the message. Yes, I love that. But uh, now, she also reminds him that this whole terrible affair started because of Helgi's stupidity. Well, she's absolutely right, but Horth also didn't have to
1: chop out too. two. Well, uh, according to history, he did. Fair enough.
0: So I guess there's no avoiding that. Now, Helgi rushes back to Horth empty-handed and somehow forgets to tell Horth about Andridi's invitation to stay with him in Thorbjörg. He's proving himself terribly unreliable at this point yes, in the is. saga. And Horth... Really, in the long run, it would have been better off if he'd just killed him. It would have.
1: But Horth expresses his disappointment in his brother-in-law by reciting a verse. My brother-in-law proved unreliable to me in lawsuits, and so is he to other wave fire jumpers. The useless heir of Thorgrim had decided instead to stay at home. The weapon wielder is harsh to us and will be worse later. Wave-fire junipers? Yeah. That's a that's a kenning for men. There's a lot of kennings, and, you know, I don't want to interrupt the poems with explanations.
0: Uh-huh. Fair enough. Uh, so, more but, prophetic words from Horth. Yeah. Uh, now, I guess this means the relationship with Indridi isn't going to get much better. Oh, far worse, in fact. But uh, we'll probably have to
1: wait for the next episode for that.
0: Yeah. Well, when, uh, when Horth's case finally comes up at the all-thing... Torvi steps forward and asks if anyone is willing to bring forward compensation on Horth's behalf. He even explains that he's willing to accept compensation if it's offered, but nobody steps forward to speak for Horth. I suspect he okay. knew that was going to happen. Well, I mean, yes.
1: I doubt he would um, have said, anyone, please, I will, I'll accept the offer if, if <laughs> you someone might have stepped forward. forward.
0: Uh, yeah, no, So he, he, he expects and gets no compensation. Yeah. And so Horth receives a sentence of full outlawry. And not just Horth. No, no, wherever Horth goes, Helgi's close behind. Mm-hmm. He's also outlawed.
1: Yeah, and I'd like to say that Horth deserved better, you know, but I just can't. No, you can't. When No, when when Gisli and Gretcher were both outlawed, I did feel bad. Gisli did kill Thorgrim, but he was avenging the murder of Vestin Vestinson, and Gretcher was a victim of really unfortunate circumstances and some rumor-mongering as well.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, I don't think either of them deserved full outlawry, but Horth cut a man in two with very little provocation. And then killed a witness, burned down a farm, and two innocent women died. So, yeah, he deserves full outlawry. He absolutely
0: does. It, it's an egregious and unforgivable act. So this, is a, this very much is a, an outlaw story that's on its own path. It's, mm-hmm. it's, we feel differently about Horth than about the others. Now, the only question now is, how will Horth and Helgi handle their outlawry? Will they achieve the noble outlaw status of their counterparts? Or will they submit to their baser nature and become true criminals? Part 8. No man is an island.
1: Once Horth learns of his outlawry, he starts making plans for his survival. And if we learned one thing about Horth so far,
0: it's that he inspires loyalty in others. No, that's true. Uh, It's an odd contrast with the behavior that got him outlawed. But Horth has a talent for gathering people around him. They might not always be the best people, but Horth never lacks for company.
1: That's true, really. He's got Helgi around him. That's not so great.
0: <laughs>
1: but one of the first companions that he seeks out in outlawry is his foster brother, Gare. Mm-hmm. So Horth visits Gare's farm, and together they decide to burn all the buildings and the hay before they leave together.
0: Right, and that's to keep Torvi from claiming it.
1: Exactly. And once gear has thrown his lot in with Horth, this, well, he's considered an outlaw, too. So Torvi would be the one to benefit from the property if it was left intact, I guess. So a smart move on their part.
0: I mean, spiteful, but, you know, a tactical move. Uh, mm-hmm. After this, Horth sets up a stronghold in Botan, which is a territory at the far end of Valfjörðr.
1: Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I, I spent a day in that area back so in 2018 here, by the way. when I went camping around Iceland for uh, before that, that saga conference. Well, that's right, we you to. did. Yeah, so, and since this is the first time I'm reading Horts Saga, I had no idea how many of the landmarks from this text were around me. <laughs> but there's a farmstead at Bolton just a bit further up the road from the Gloomer Falls uh, parking area. So if you ever make your way to Iceland and you enjoy hiking, I highly recommend the Gloomer Falls hike, by the way. It, it's, it's a strenuous one, but the views are really worth it. And as you climb toward the falls, you get a great view of the area, including Bolton and and out all the way across uh, Fallfjordr. Then uh, that includes another cool landmark from Horth's outlawry that we're going to get to in a moment.
0: Yeah. We we got to get back to Iceland, do some uh, some touring around sometime.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, maybe we can do that when this uh, when the pandemic ends.
1: Uh, yeah, at this point, I'm afraid we're going to both be too old if we wait that long. <laughs>
0: well, we have to wait until Americans are actually welcome to travel again. That's true. Yeah. It might be a yeah. while. Man, things uh, are a mess. Anyway, uh, Horth and Geir and Helgi set up a stronghold at Bodden. And they're not alone. Horth's whole household follows him into outlawry, and presumably some of Gare's as well.
1: So, whereas characters like Gisli and Gretir lived in isolation for the most part, Horth is spending his outlawry surrounded by family and friends. It's
0: Absolutely. It's really strange. And as you can imagine, feeding a group of outlaws that size, well, that can be quite a challenge.
1: Yeah. I, see, I thought Ghisli and Gretir's saga established very, very clearly for us that the hardest part about being an outlaw was getting reliable access to food and shelter. So I can't imagine how you do that with a whole household full of men and women and even children.
0: Right. Well, it's a problem that Horth's band has to solve pretty quickly. Uh, Their food stores run out within the year, and they're soon looking for other sources of livestock and the necessities they need to survive.
1: Right. And so what follows in the saga is a series of episodes in which Horth and his men go looking for food or supplies, which is it's really a pretty common motif in outlaw stories.
0: Sure, of course it is. I uh, mean, you can't have any action if Robin Hood never leaves Sherwood Forest.
1: That's a good point. Although I would point out that Robin Hood gets plenty of action by robbing those who come through Sherwood Forest. He doesn't always have to leave. Fair. Uh,
0: but Horace and his band don't exactly live in a high traffic area. They got to bring the action to the people.
1: Okay. So, as I was saying, there are quite a few episodes here. Uh, they're all kind of really interesting and entertaining in their own way. They're each one chapter, so they're self-contained. Um, but this isn't the summer of Horth, John. We, we can't cover every episode where they run a, out for a snack.
0: I, yeah. I mean, that's, that's fair. So, why don't, we, uh, why don't we each pick one or two to summarize so we can move it along more quickly.
1: Okay. So, we just summarize the episode briefly and move on, right?
0: That's the idea. Just give the people a taste.
1: All right, but no lengthy digressions, okay?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Sure, you'll get no argument from me. Okay, you go first. Uh, That's actually good, because I want to do the first expedition. Oh, how convenient. All right, go ahead. Uh, Okay, now, when the outlaws are down to just a few cows in the autumn, they start to think about how they'll feed themselves through the winter. One morning, just before Yule, Ger wakes Helgi up early, and the two sneak off to a nearby farmstead at Votenzorn. They approach the cow shed, and Helgi agrees to keep watch while Gere sneaks in and unties the cattle. But meanwhile, two farmhands are playing a board game in the hay store there. When they hear the cattle moving around, one of them steps outside to see what's going on. Helgi, as we've come to expect from him, kills him instantly. <laughs> uh, the other one then comes out a little bit later to see where his friend went, and Gere, who I guess realizes in for a penny and for a pound, uh, Gere dispatches him. With the farmhands out of the way, Gare and Helgi select a fat seven year ox and lead him back to Bolton. But when Horth sees the ox, he's furious. Stealing is beneath them, he argues. Uh, which is an odd attitude for an outlaw to take, but Well, he's uh, an
1: outlaw for slicing a right. man too, not for stealing.
0: Well, um but I mean gear quite reasonably convinces him there's honestly no other way to feed everyone. Uh Horth finally agrees to that, but he's not real happy about it. Soon after, rumors start circulating that Horth must have paid compensation for the men and the ox. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, I like that one because
1: it establishes that Horth is at least uncomfortable with stealing food, but resigns himself to it as, as the only means to feed the growing number of people around him.
0: Right. I mean, the only other option would be to, you know, start farming and actually behave like a grown-up.
1: Yeah, it's uh, crazy.
0: But, uh, <laughs> they're not going to do that, obviously. No. Uh, but speaking of that growing number of people he has to take care of, Hor's stronghold begins to attract more than just friends and family. Soon, he's attracting other outlaws and other undesirables into his camp.
1: Right. Men like Thord Cat and Thorgair Beltbeard. Exactly. You were just fishing for a reference to Beltbeard, weren't you?
0: I, no, no. I was just setting you up in case you might need him for your quick summary.
1: Oh, how kind of you. No, I don't need Thorgair Beltbeard, but Thord Cat plays a minor role in this one.
0: <laughs> Not for long, if I know which one you're doing.
1: Yeah, well, I think you're right, but b- before I jump into my bit, and speaking of kind of that the growing band, uh, we should note that uh, after a few of these little outlaw excursions, the locals get kind of annoyed with Horde and his band.
0: Yeah, no, they get annoyed enough that they gather a small force to hunt down the outlaws and put an end to the raiding.
1: Right, and when they hear about this, um, Gare first suggests that they, maybe they should build a fortification to defend themselves, but... Horth figures that if they do that, they'll just cut off the outlaws' food supplies and starve them out, siege style. Right, that's a logical assumption. Yeah, so rather than build a fortification, Horth recommends that they move the outlaw camp to a natural fortification. They want to move to an island with mm-hmm. sheer cliffs sitting in the middle of Falfjörðr. The island is actually known as Gersholm now, or Geir's Island.
0: Right, and just to give you an idea of uh, how many people are in Horth's band of outlaws... Let me read to you the description of their move from Botn to Gersholm. Oh, so much for our plan to run through this all quickly, huh? You, sh- you hush, you started the island digression. The saga says, They took a great ferry from Saurbeth from Thorsten Oxgo to assist them, and a six-oared boat from Thormod of Brekka, and a four-oared seal boat from Thorvald Blackbeard. Another beard nickname. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it then goes on to describe their living quarters. They made themselves a great longhouse, and one end faced the northeast and the other the southwest, and there were doors in the middle of the longhouse walls on the western side.
1: Yeah, that's really cool, and it's one of the most detailed descriptions of a Viking house that we've seen in the saga so far. Yeah, it's super cool. Yeah. That, That chapter is also cool because it describes the rules of living on the island. It says that all tasks were shared between the island dwellers, and it was their law that anyone who could not get up for more than three nights in a row would be thrown over the cliff.
0: It's an effective way to discourage people from getting lazy.
1: Oh, well, yeah. And I don't think that Gretcher would have done too well with these outlaws. Well, no, that's why Gretcher's a loner. He makes his own rules. <laughs> True. Now, according to the saga, there were 180 people living on the island when it was at its maximum capacity and never lower than 70s at its minimum. That's
0: no. crazy. Yeah, 180 is an impressive number. That That almost strains credulity.
1: It, it really does. You know, the saga doesn't name all 180, but it does name quite a few. And many of them are characters that we've become familiar with over these past two episodes. Horth and his wife Helga, and uh, Helga the Earl's daughter. Um, and they're there with their two sons, uh, Grimkel and Bjorn. Bjorn's only two years old at this point.
0: Right. So it's a little adventure for him. Yeah. Uh, then there's Horth's buddies, uh, Gare, Sigurth, Torfy's foster brother, and Helgi. And, of course, Thord cat and Thorger Beltbeard,
1: who we are told is one of the worst outlaws in the band because he kept suggesting new criminal deeds
0: and other outrages. Right. Now, what's interesting is that Horth manages to set up a nice little kind of city-state for himself there in Gershal. Yeah, he does. Uh, it might be comprised of some of Iceland's most despised characters at the time, but they all swear oaths to Horth and Ger and promise to be true to each other. All for one and one for all and all that, right? Something like that. Now, the whole thing is remarkable, and if true, which, you know, we can raise an eyebrow at this, uh, but it would make sense that this series of events would have stuck in the cultural memory of the region. Right. An island full of more than 100 outlaws is a hard thing to forget, especially in rural Iceland.
1: Oh, and I should mention that the night before I hiked up to Glimmer Falls, I stayed at a great campsite nearby uh, at a place called uh, Bjartarsundr, and there was, it's a nice family-owned farm and campground there. Mm-hmm. Um, highly recommended. Uh, they, they they have comfortable grounds, hot showers, which I loved, and a dining hall with great beer. It was fantastic.
0: Uh, you said this was camping, right? Well,
1: it's Icelandic camping, which is the best. Uh, um, but anyway, I slept in a tent, John. That's what matters. Anyway, go. The, the point is the view from the property is really fantastic because you're you're right there on the fjord. And um, it looks out over the, the water and you can walk down to the shore from the campground. And I remember they had a huge, they had whale bones lying all over the place, both on the farmstead and near the shore. And had I known that Gersholm was an important site to saga studies, I would have stared in awe at it from the shore because it's right, it's literally right there, not far at all from where I was standing that evening.
0: Right, but you hadn't read this saga yet.
1: No, no. I had no idea that this was such a cool spot. <laughs> the only pictures I have of home are from the various lookouts on the way up to Gloomer Falls. And they're, they're really nice pictures, good vistas, but you don't get a really good sense of home from them. So, again, I think we need to go back to Iceland, John.
0: I'm ready. Uh, okay, well, we managed to digress and lose track of our purpose. It, it was your turn to tell an outlaw expedition story.
1: Right. Yes, I forget. That's what we were doing. Yeah, I was going down memory lane. <laughs> so there was this woman called Thorbjorg Katla who knew some magic, and she felt so confident in her powers that she often boasted that Horth than his men would never do her any harm. So when Geir heard about this, well, he decided to put it to a test. Now, why would he do that? A spirit of adventure, I guess. Uh Gare is a bold guy who might not have the best sense. But anyway, he sets out with 12 men and they make their way towards Bolton, where uh, Thorbjörg Katla lives, or near where she lives anyway. And they quickly spot a herd of livestock wandering north over the mountain as they arrive in the area. Now, while most of the party tracks the livestock, Thorbjörg Katla is told to hang back on the ridge and keep a watch. And that's when Thorbjörg Katla comes out of her house. She is sensed that they are there. And mm-hmm. so she waves her scarf over her head, and a great darkness swallows up Gare and all his men. They can't see where they're going or where they've been. Thorbjorn Cutlass' son Ref then arrives on the scene with fifteen men, and they quickly surround Thord Cat as he sits there in the darkness, all alone, and they kill him. And by this point, Gare and his men slowly had made their way back to the ferry. And as they approached the shore, the darkness suddenly lifted. and They discovered that Ref and his men were close by, just about to attack This ambush caught Gare's party off guard. So only Gare survived, but just barely. Even though he's badly wounded, he manages to scramble back onto the ferry and push himself out into the fjord. He made it back to the island, and then was promptly mocked by Horth for making such a foolish expedition.
0: (laughs) Nice. You almost have to admire Horth for kicking Gare when he's down.
1: I figured you would really like that. It seemed like your kind of thing, (laughs) having experienced it many times.
0: Oh, wow. (laughs)
1: And then to rub uh, salt in the wounds, Horth goes out himself with a smaller group and attempts the same mission. And Thorbjörg Kotlet tries her magic scarf trick again, but for some reason, Horth isn't affected, probably because mm-hmm. he's the hero. And he spots the livestock, herds them toward the ferry, and slaughters as many animals as will fit before heading back to the island.
0: Right. No, I think we know why he's not affected, right? Remember that um, from his birth, Horth has this ability that he sees things as they are. Oh, that's right. He, yeah. He can't be deceived. Um, but I think technically, uh, the claim of Thor, Thorbjörg Katla that she's not going to be harmed by Hord is still true, right? She's not hurt in any of this.
1: Yeah. I mean, technically, but I think her boast included harm to her property.
0: Yeah, probably.
1: She just lost a lot of livestock, but okay. Yeah. Um, and John, why don't you do one more of these little episodes and then I'll, I'll hit us with the last episode.
0: Okay. Um, now this one happens at the end of summer and, uh, just like with Thorbjörg Katla, they hear a rumor. That a woman named Scropa thought she had the magic skills to protect Thorstein Oxgode's property from the home dwellers. I'm glad you're doing this one. This is a good one. Uh, no, well, as soon as Horth hears about it, uh, he they can't allow a brag like that to go unanswered. right? So he sets off with a band of 24 men, and they make their way to Thorstein's farm in Sarba. When they arrive, they see a large bull roaming the shore near the boat shed. A couple of the men want to slaughter the bull, but Horth advises them against it. And these guys, they don't care. Uh, two of them rush at the bull and quickly find themselves with holes in their chests.
1: Hmm. So they don't—they don't get the bull then.
0: No, no, they—they they messed with the bull and, and they got the the horns. I the, get it. <laughs> you'd think so, but these guys actually threw their spears at the bull and somehow the spears got deflected back at their chests. What? So that's what they got.
1: That's very strange and hard to believe.
0: It A little bit, uh, but Horde reminds everyone that on this farm, not everything is as it seems.
1: Ooh, spooky. we got a yeah, spooky so farm.
0: They, they march up to the farm, and they find all the buildings wide open, which they think is awfully convenient.
1: Yeah, something is definitely not right here.
0: That's what Horde thinks, too, and he's right. Thorsten Oxgoat isn't home, but Scroppa the witch is. And she's got Thorsten's two daughters with her, but she's created an illusion, making herself and the two girls look like three boxes sitting on a platform. Very clever. Several of the men spot the boxes and discuss cracking them open to see what might be inside, but Horth, suspecting something is off here, stops them. And so they continue searching the farm. As they head north of the farm, they spot a large sow running with two piglets, and so they run over to catch the pigs. Just then, they see a a large crowd of men running toward them from across the field, and they're all wearing armor— and they're uh, armed with spears and swords. It's a trap. That's what Ger thinks. He urges everyone to rush back to the ships as quickly as they can, but Horth isn't so sure. He picks up a large stone and smashes it into the sow's head, killing it instantly. Hmm. And there, right where the sow had been, is the now-dead witch, Scroppa. And standing over her dead body are the two girls, Thorsten's daughters.
1: And what about the horde of angry men coming at
0: them? Yeah, those, those were cows.
1: Uh, well, I mean, on the bright side, they don't have to search for the livestock anymore.
0: Nope. Uh, they drive the cattle down to the ferry and slaughter them near the shore so they can load as much meat onto the ferry as they can, presumably without the cows turning back into men.
1: Uh, it's another victory for Horde than the Island Dwellers. This is
0: great. Yeah, I don't know if that's a good thing, but yeah, it's a win.
1: Yeah, okay. So uh, there's one more of these expeditions that we need to cover, and then we're going to shut it down for this episode.
0: Right. Um, If it's the one I'm thinking of, it's kind of important.
1: It is, yeah. Yeah, this one happens in the summer after the episode you just recounted, and Horth and his men are out gathering livestock again when they're spotted by Ilugi the Red, Horth's brother-in-law.
0: Right, now this is the guy who's married to Thurid, Horth's elder half-sister.
1: That's right, yes. And things had never really been good between him and Horth, so there, you remember there, there was that awkward betrothal. Right. Iluki immediately, once he spots Horth, sends out messengers to gather a band of men that adds up to about 30. Hmm. Now, Horth is a keen-sighted kind of guy who notices when storm clouds are gathering on the horizon, and he spots all this action in the distance, and he even recognizes his brother-in-law. And so he tells Gare to make a choice. Do you want to be in charge of slaughtering the animals, or do you want to go deal with Ilugi?
0: <laughs> now, you might suspect that as bold as Gear is, he's going to focus on animal husbandry today.
1: That's right. How'd you guess? Uh, but, <laughs> but Horth, he's really not bothered by this. He says he actually prefers it this way. Mm-hmm. And so he sets out with a group of 12 men to meet Ilugi's forces and defend the sheep pens where Gear is slaughtering the livestock. The battle's pretty fierce and especially difficult for Horde's men. He's only got twelve, and he's going up against thirty. And now word is spread about Horde's activities, and Elugi's group soon gets reinforcements, swelling their numbers to more than forty.
0: Right. And Horde still has only twelve. That's it's right. a ridiculously uneven fight, but I mean we see this kind of thing in outlaw stories all the time. As long as the outlaw hero is at the front, his band can't lose. Horde's men defend the sheep pens admirably. And even so,
1: everyone is wounded in the battle. Even Horth himself takes a vicious wound from a double-bladed axe, but this defense was just enough to provide Gare and his crew enough time to finish slaughtering the sheep, which was the whole point. Mm-hmm. So they load the ferry just as Horth's numbers begin to dwindle.
0: Now Horth's group jumps onto the ferry and they push off. And although the wind is against them, they make progress getting away because they'd taken the time to disable most of the large ships along the shore, uh, which delays lugie's pursuit.
1: Yeah, but the trip back to home is a really tough one. It's an unlucky one, one might say. Mm-hmm. So as you said, the the wind is against them, and many of the men are actually wounded, so they're weak. And eventually they're forced to stop along Asgeri. And there they decide to unload the cargo, all that meat that they just loaded on, to improve the speed of the ferry and, and help them get away.
0: Yeah, but Gare felt like they had worked too hard to abandon the meat. Uh, He insists that they leave him and one other man to defend this pile of meat on the Skerry. And although Horth doesn't like the idea, he agrees. With the lighter load, Horth is able to steer the ferry back out into the fjord and toward the island.
1: Now by this time, Ilugi and his group have found some working boats, and they're in hot pursuit. And eventually the two forces clash once again. And as the skirmish begins, Horth addresses Ilugi directly, saying, You're pursuing hard, brother-in-law. And I had a premonition of this long ago. I can see it is now fulfilled.
0: And Alugi replies, Well, you've done much to deserve it, Horth.
1: Now, Horth does his best to defend the fairy, but he doesn't have the numbers to fend off the attackers. And as they are close to Gersholm now, the men on the island have actually seen it, this conflict, and sent reinforcements. So just mm-hmm. as Horth is about to fall, three boats arrive from the island with fresh forces. And Ilugi is forced to retreat, and the islanders actually chase him all the way out of the fjord.
0: Meanwhile, on the Skerry, Gare and his companion are attacked by a party of seven men. He fends them off as best he can, but it looks hopeless. And of course, by this time, Ilugi has been defeated, and Horth rushes back to the Skerry and rescues Gare, killing six of the seven men who'd been attacking. Yeah, and, and somehow Horth
1: has managed to survive this encounter relatively unscathed, and with a huge pile of meat.
0: I mean we did we did mention a wound with a double-bladed axe earlier. I said relatively. Uh, relatively. Right, relatively. He's uh, alive. So it's it's a close call, but I mean those are the best kinds of outlaw stories. Yeah.
1: And Horth caps it all off with a great poem. Ilugi the Red felled fifteen flood moon trees earlier. Homestead Tour was reluctant to make peace. Rather well did fierce-minded Gare repay that onslaught. Now, just as many wolf feeders of the Gold Givers Band have fallen.
0: That's a good one. It is. And with that, Horth has now crossed swords with his own family. Right, that's a significant moment. There's no turning back now for either side.
1: No, and I don't think that Ilugi will soon forget his encounter with Horth.
0: Right, well, and you don't think uh, Horth will forget the day his own brother in law set out to kill him either? No, it's, it's
1: actually it's a great setup. For the thrilling conclusion of Whore's saga.
0: Yeah, but that's gonna have to wait. It's uh <laughs> it's time to pull the saga thing train into the station and let her cool down for the night.
1: I agree. Yeah, we don't wanna we don't wanna overheat the old girl, do we?
0: <laughs> no, especially <laughs> with the action of the final third of the saga. This is one of those times when the term thrilling conclusion actually fits.
1: Yes, so uh tune in next time to find out if
0: Hoar and Alugi kiss and make up. Yeah, don't hold your breath. I think the better question, given that this is an Icelandic outlaw story, is whether or not Horth survives.
1: Or, you know, let's assume he doesn't. You might wonder if he goes out in a blaze of glory like Gisli, or maybe he succumbs to trickery and deceit like poor Grettir.
0: Maybe both. You're not going to want to miss it.
1: Way to sell it, John. Good job.
0: I do my best. Uh, if you can't sell the steak, sell the sizzle. Uh, now... I see the station lights ahead there, Andy. Uh, if while well, the train and this metaphor slows down, <laughs> why don't we uh, crack open the listener rune sack and see what's inside?
1: We're gonna crack it open. you know, it's a drawstring bag, not a treasure chest. Is it? Is it really? well, I mean, in my mind it is. I mean it's a rune sack, not a not a rune box, John. I mean, in my mind.
0: Uh, fine. Uh, pull the top of the bag open, Andy. Loosen that string. <laughs> yeah, you know, that doesn't sound dramatic <laughs> enough. It's your sack, Andy. Oh,
1: whoa. Now, hold on, John. Oh. All right. Now, I I, I have one here from uh, from Njol Armstrong, who left a comment on our blog page. Oh, that's great. Hi, Njol. Now, I bet people forget that they can leave comments on the blog page, but uh, we, do, we do get comments there, and we get some good ones. Well, let's hope this is one of them. Well, you'll be the judge of that, but I think it is. Uh, Njal writes, Dear John and Andy, thank you for your wonderful podcasts. I I just listened to your discussion of Volsafouter, which was very enjoyable. And I don't know there's ellipses in there. Uh, as a Norwegian archaeologist, I've always taken this tale way too seriously as a possible hint of pre-Christian ritual. It's good to see that source criticism can be so funny, but but I thought you'd like to know that in northern Norway today, Heskuk, uh, which means horse dick, is the worst of insults and also the fondest of endearments, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> in, in a famous court case, actually, a few years back, it was even deemed as a legitimate insult to use against policemen. That's, wow. What a funny detail. <laughs> For my part, I imagine that the difficult relationship between Northerners and the royal power in the late Viking period led to a lot of people being called Hestkuk, and that this little fouter was another way of Southerners responding to our flowery language. I remain your humble servant, Neil Armstrong.
0: Okay, so first of all, is Neil Armstrong his real name? Because it's a yeah. it's a really clever Norwegian play on the name Neil Armstrong.
1: I, I noticed that, and I, I don't think it's his real name. He, he's just a very clever boy.
0: But I love it. But, you know, just in case it is, thanks for the great comment, Neil. Yeah. Uh, we've all met a few Hestkoks in our day. Yes, we have. Uh, it's uh, It's nice to know there's an appropriate term for them now. Yeah, I do a podcast with one. Oh, now see what I did there? No, I. That's not pleasant. No, either. And I th- assume you mean that in the in term of endearment sense.
1: Yeah, that's the ticket. Endearment.
0: <laughs> uh, now, thank you for writing in. Uh, that's amazing. It's. It's. I mean, it's probably not connected to of Thotter in any meaningful way, but it's brilliant. Uh, For the record, after we got your message, I went and looked up other contextual uses of Hestgook. And what I learned is that someone in Norway also makes a barbecue sauce by that name.
1: So you're telling me that someone makes a barbecue sauce named for a horse phallus.
0: What a time to be alive, huh?
1: But it's not a barbecue sauce for the horses, John Thomas, is it? Uh,
0: no. Uh, I think that's not usually a sauced meat.
1: I, I wouldn't know but but we're not buying that there's a connection to the fou here are we
0: I mean it's is it possible the people of the north of Norway have a history of using this term as an insult sure absolutely right no I get
1: I mean I, I totally agree with that but it's nothing to do with the fouter is what you're saying
0: I mean I would think not but I'm not gonna say definitively but yeah but I, I, uh, I do
1: wonder if the 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 choice for for the Volsa is Connected Mm. to this idea of the ridiculousness. Right. That, I
0: think, is possible. Absolutely.
1: So they Uh, kind of run parallel, I guess, would be the way to think about it. Right. Right.
0: The other way around. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm particularly interested in what Nyal says about the Hestcook being used as a term of endearment as well as for a scathing insult. (laughs) Yes. I grew up in New York, and we had a few terms that were used similarly. Uh, Son of a bitch is one that immediately comes to mind. It has that same dual usage. Right. It's a, it's kind of like a contronym, except it doesn't actually contain two opposite meanings. It always means the same thing. It's just that it's being used affectionately as well as insultingly. Right. I was trying to think of any medieval example of the same kind of thing, where the same term is used for a positive and negative connotation. The first possibility I thought of, and it's a stretch, is the term aglaca in Anglo-Saxon English. Oh, is this going to open up a Beowulf lesson? Uh, well, I mean, it's off, not just Beowulf, right? It's, it's, the term aglaka is often translated as monstrous or awful, but it actually means something closer to formidable or awe-striking. Uh, aglaka gets used mostly to describe terrifying monsters, but it is also used to describe Beowulf. There you go. And it's also used in one text to refer to Bede as say aglaka Lerao, hmm. uh, the awe-inspiring teacher.
1: So maybe there's a bit of history to that kind of usage, even if no one was calling their best friend
0: Volsi. Right. Mm. (laughs) Uh, Although now I want to try. Uh, (laughs) All right. uh, What's next?
1: Well, here's one from uh, Mark Allen Donaldson via email. He says, first, I flipping love the podcasts. And I I love (laughs) the use of the word flipping because I I only think of Richard Iowati who says flipping all the time and when I hear that. Um, but Mark Allen Donaldson says, I'm a PhD candidate in medieval lit, looking at Arthurian and Alexandrian lit, but I haven't had much chance to study the saga. So saga thing is a great way to get into that world. So that's great. That's why we do the podcast, Mark Allen. Um, now, he says, I am spending more time at home. I was wondering if there was any accessible books or online tools for getting to grips with Old Norse so that I could get the most out of all those weird nicknames.
0: That's the best reason to learn the language. Uh that's a great question. Uh, thank you, Mark Allen. Uh, this comes up from time to time. So we've actually added a tab on our blog with a few links to some resources. hmm uh, and I think, Andy, that's been updated recently, hasn't it?
1: Yes, that's right. Yeah. Mainly because, you know, I, w- I just recently I was talking to one of my best friends from college, uh, Roy, about Old Norse readers. And he's just finishing Jesse Bajock's Viking Language 1 and was looking for more. So the first place to go if you're looking to get into Old Norse would probably be that rather accessible book and its companion reader, which is Volume 2.
0: Right. And then... Uh Uh, I I absolutely agree. Uh, Andy and I both learned using E.V. Gordon's introduction to Old Norse, Mm -hmm. so we have a soft spot for that as well.
1: Yes, we do. Um, And, of course, you could also use Anthony Falk's A New Introduction to Old Norse, which was put out by the Viking Society for Northern Research. Um, Mm -hmm. That three-volume set, which includes a reader, is actually available for free now on the Viking Society website. Um, and There will be links to that um, in the show notes. So if you're looking for online resources, though, I'd recommend maybe the Old Norse Online by the University of Texas's Linguistic Research Center. Uh, and and there, there must be other good Old Norse resources out there on the internet. I'm just not that familiar with them. But uh, that should at least cover your basics, Mark Allen. And obviously the dictionaries well, too.
0: Right. And maybe some of our listeners are aware of other resources. So if anybody knows of good online resources for Old Norse, please let us know. Yeah. And if you'd like
1: to do that or maybe get in touch to ask a question or offer a comment of your own or maybe just to say hi... You can reach us on all the major social media platforms.
0: Like which ones? Well,
1: all the major ones, John.
0: The top men. Uh, you mean like Twitter?
1: <laughs> yes, top men. Yes. No. Yeah, on Twitter. Yeah, we are on Twitter. We have. We're called Saga Thing Pod on Twitter, John.
0: How exciting! Mm-hmm. Are we on the uh, the the nefarious Facebook as well?
1: Yes, we are. We are still there for the time being under the name Saga Thing
0: Podcast. Clever name.
1: I know, isn't it?
0: Uh, What about Instagram? Surely a couple of guys who read books have no business being on Instagram.
1: Well, you're right and wrong there, Johnny. While we have no business being on Instagram for any reason whatsoever, we are there anyway (laughs) as Saga Thing Podcast. Fascinating. Isn't it, though? What if people
0: don't want to use social media? What if they're like me? What do they do then? Well, they can use
1: email. We are Sagathing Podcast at gmail.com. And honestly, if that doesn't work, I, I don't know what else to tell you.
0: I mean, they could spray paint one letter of the message on each sheep of a flock and wait for us to steal them. I mean, you'd have to hope the sheep are lined up in just the right order, but it'd be super impressive if it worked out.
1: Well, I mean, if I see a bunch of sheep with different letters on them, I'm going to want to arrange them in the right order. Right. Who doesn't love a sheep? <laughs> but how do you know what the
0: right order is? Depends on how long the message is.
1: <laughs> That's true. Yeah. This could be hundreds of sheep, Andy. Well, uh, well, let's keep it limited. Let's Let's keep it limited to <laughs> maybe, you know, 50 sheep. Anyway, that does it for us, everyone. The Saga Thing train is safely in the station now. It's time to shut her down.
0: Wow. You're just gonna you're gonna grind that <laughs> metaphor into the ground.
1: Just this once,
0: yeah. Can it can
1: I blow the whistle one more time? No no John. Saga thing is tired now. But <laughs> check back <laughs> with us in two weeks and we will have a thrilling conclusion. A real thrilling conclusion to Horde Saga. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Brunjolf sets him up with a safe package. (laughs) I've got a package for Brunjolf, but I wouldn't call it safe. We're never going to get done.